0: This is the business of sports. Let's talk Super Bowl and Fox Sports.
2: Every single thing that occurs, I want people to remember this is a business. Guaranteed money isn't necessarily guaranteed. Michael Barr. How high can these valuations go? Scott Soshnank. Duke.
0: Everybody loves rooting against him, right? Evan Novi williams
3: Off the field, the NBA has never been buzzier. And
0: the leaders in the sports industry. Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred.
2: Mike Resco He's the commissioner of the American Athletic Conference. Jared Smith, president of Ticketmaster. Mindy, race car driver. Elio Castro. Bloomberg Business of Sports
0: from Bloomberg
3: Radio.
2: Hello, I'm Scott
0: Sarkett.
3: I'm Evan Novi Williams.
0: And I'm Michael Barr, and this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports Podcast, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports, and today we begin with a serious topic. Uh, the impact of the coronavirus on the sports world. Several events have already been canceled because of this. And I should add right now, in mainland China, hundreds of people have died. In fact, that number is starting to approach 1,000 of the people that died in mainland China. Right now, it's about a 910, as we're talking right now. So. You can see why there is concern about
3: this. Yeah, and as this as this affects the business world writ large, it obviously affects the sports business world. And you're seeing that everything from Chinese consumers, who a lot of them are staying inside, or not shopping as much, uh, and also, you know, a large portion of the business world relies on manufacturing and sourcing from China, and and factory output has also gone down as a result of this. So, so on that side of things, you know, obviously there is concern, and a number of companies like Nike have have been outspoken about the fact that you know their business is going to suffer as a result of this uh, and the other you know big thing and you mentioned it michael you know events have been canceled and the big question the 2020 olympics in tokyo oh, yeah. um a country that has had you know i believe it has the second biggest number of confirmed cases outside of China, Um, that's the big one. An Olympic CEO, the CEO of the Tokyo Olympics, said last week he's seriously worried. Then he walked that back a little bit. But the big question is, what does this look like over the next couple months? And does it affect one of the biggest sporting events on the planet?
2: Let me explain why. Guys, you have to wonder about him walking back. I'm seriously worried. He should be seriously Mm -hmm. worried. There's a cruise ship right now, you know, anchored off of Japan where hundreds of people are already sick and they're trying to contain it you have the world the eyes of the world on your country you have the world coming to visit i would be extremely concerned uh because frankly what can he do what can the organizing committee do it's incumbent upon others to solve the problem
3: yeah and and there's you know just for precedent you know a lot of people are comparing this year's coronavirus outbreak to the outbreak of sars in 2003 if people don't remember China was supposed to host the Women's World Cup that year. And because of that outbreak, it was moved at the last minute here to the U.S. And then the U.S. hosted it because it had the infrastructure in place already. Uh, So there is at least some precedent for, you know, when there is a a massive pandemic or an outbreak of disease, major sporting events having to scramble at the last minute to move, to relocate, to to get their events off the ground.
0: Now, the coronavirus has surpassed SARS in terms of the people... Uh, who have died from it already and uh, i mean this is very serious the lbga tour Mm -hmm. they've canceled two more asia tournaments because of the virus let's say for instance now what if they have to move the olympics and and that could happen it's the impact that it would have uh, would be devastating
3: yeah, and and again, you know the the example I gave about the World Cup, it, it is easier to move a World Cup than it is to move an Olympics for yeah. sure. I don't know. I don't. I don't believe anyone has at least talked publicly about if there is even a plan B for for how to do that. And, and don't forget, we're talking about the Olympics and the Paralympics, right? They they travel together. They happen at the same time in the same city, right after each other. Uh, so that would be a massive, massive undertaking. And I don't think we're there yet. I think the big issue is that, and none of us are scientists here, but it sounds like the incubation period on this virus is very large, which makes projecting the spread of it extremely difficult. Uh, so, you know, we don't know right now, obviously, but, you know, it's going to be a while, I think, before we have an understanding exactly of whether this thing is contained, where it's going, etc. And that—that that is the thing, and I agree with you, Scott, that's the thing that scares me if I'm Tokyo, is the fact yeah. that, you know, we may be months away from, from having concrete answers already.
2: And there has to be a line of demarcation, and we have a go date, we have a stop date. I mean, you're going to need to know at some point, and if you are going to try to switch locales, preparations there have to begin. Do they know that date one, and is it time to start calling some insurance carriers and saying what? What is the organizing committee? You know, how does the insurance on this event work? Does
3: it feel like every Olympic cycle there is either a massive, you know, global? Some outbreak of some disease or geopolitical concern. It feels like every time, whether it's Zika, whether it's what's happening in, in, in Russia and Ukraine, it just feels like every Olympic cycle, there is something that gives uh, travelers pause on whether or not they want to attend the Games.
2: In short answer, yes.
3: Yeah. And, and the, the funny thing, I mean, we talked about this on the show recently, is that for a lot of people the Tokyo 2020 games were viewed as the completely safe games. You know, that after, you know, two Olympic cycles of concerns about Zika or concerns about the weather or concerns about Russia, this was the games that everybody was kind of ramping up for from a commercial standpoint because they felt like it was the one that that wasn't going to have concerns like that.
0: Let's talk about something happy. And thank goodness they are friends of the program, and I'm very happy for Oliver Luck because the XFL, Vince McMahon's Pro Football League, made its return to the spotlight over the weekend and fellas, it wasn't bad. It I, I kind of liked the games. did you watch, watch Bar? Yeah. I, I watched the New York game, which by okay. the way, that's the best New York team in football going right oh, now. Stop, stop. Don't <laughs> take shots. But yeah, but um, it's a good product. I like
2: it. What I was most impressed with, guys, was the presentation on television. And you can say all you want about tickets and they had about 17 thousand average in new york and we all know the scale of media is going to determine whether or not this league succeeds and it looks like they had about 3.3 million viewers for the first game and the presentation is why you're having mic'd up coaches and players answering questions right after plays you have betting lines on screens this is the way people want their sports these days and if they can make a viable media play and they do have good partners abc espn fox if they can make these audiences stick around it doesn't have to be 3.3 million every week but if they can get a decent sized audience then they have a chance at long-term success.
3: So I agree I agree with a lot of that. The interviews on on I think Pat McAfee does a great job, but the interviews in the middle of the game are, are are great. The the mic'd up situation room when there are reviews, I think is something that the NFL should be doing next season if they can. I think that's fantastic also. The odds on the screen did not do much for I mean the They didn't change. They just showed it was over under. Yeah, it was over under. That's it. I mean, to me, if you're going to do that, you need to be showing. Oh, the the favorite, which happened last night in the Dallas game, they were favored by nine and a half points. They were losing. They ended up losing the game, and the whole time, minus nine and a half is on the screen. I mean, I wish they would say, oh, you know, with that touchdown, now suddenly St. Louis is the is the favorite to win this game, or
2: so you want updated live betting odds and everything scrolling? Yeah,
3: I think when you're in the third quarter and the and the team that's favored by ten points is losing. And you just have them up as favored by 10 points. That seems kind of pointless to me in the end. I mean, when Jeff, when Jeff Pollack on our podcast, the president said last week that they're embracing the spread, I was expecting a little bit more on that end. Um, and then two other things I'll say real quick. I, I think the, the fact that they don't have a union is going to allow them to do a lot of these innovative things. And I think you're seeing that. And then secondly, there are subtle rule changes they've made that are going to keep competitive balance really interesting that I think would drive fans up the wall if this league was ever to take off and become super serious.
0: Well, part of the the issue with that is because of the the extra point system. I and mean, for people not familiar with it, you can score an extra point from the 2-yard line, 2 from the 5 and 3 from the 10, mm-hmm. if I got it right. Yep. What that does is it throws out your usual numbers of 3, 6 and 7 which are, you know, your based uh, when you're trying to to handicap a game kind of throws that out the window
3: yeah and cu- couple that with the way that the clock stops after plays and you your team could be winning by nine points with the ball and the other team has no timeouts and two minutes left and you can you can lose that game in overtime yeah. and that is something that that if it happened at an nfl level would would drive people insane but it's going to keep i think it's going to keep fans interested just because regardless of the the score towards the end of the game the team that is losing is always closer in it than you know what i compared it to this is going to age me a little bit but but mario kart the video game for <laughs> folks out there who ever played mario kart
2: and ba- bar what what is the 10 year old talking
3: about the, the way that that game was structured mario kart if you played mario kart with someone who was bad the person who was bad was always kind of in it and you could easily lose to that person <laughs> because the game was, a, was structured essentially so that if you were playing poorly you had a better chance of, of
2: moving forward. You know what and, I like? Well, I don't know what he's Scott. talking about. I, I would play Jackson. I was consistently uh, ahead in the lapping. Thank you very much. I don't know what game you were playing. <laughs> oh, I, I love that. I'm going to age me a little bit. Mario Kart. <laughs> yeah, Mario Kart. Right. It wasn't Space Invaders. Uh, it wasn't Centipede. It was Mario Kart.
0: Back in my day we were playing but, Shopping Kart. That was but about I, it.
3: Did, I did feel that way about the XFL, that that the, the team that is trailing is always more in it than they are in other leagues, you know, the NFL. And I think that that is great in the beginning, but as this league matures, that may have to change. Right.
2: Well, guys, I'll tell you this. Uh, after first or second game, uh, when the, it sort of seems the press that was going on, the social that was going on, I texted Jeffrey Pollock and I said, hey, congrats on a successful launch, something to build on. His response was, Yes, exactly. So they have something. There's something here to build on. Let's see where it goes.
3: And let's not forget that the week one of the AAF last year did very good ratings and people were very impressed with the on-field product. And then, you know, we we know that league didn't see through its first season. And then they ran out of money. But we
2: know this league will not run out of money.
3: Yes, at least not in the first six weeks, hopefully.
2: All I know is a team named
0: the Roughnecks, man. You gotta you gotta like that, man. I I you know the Houston Roughnecks, by the way, they won. They beat the LA Wildcats, so I like that.
1: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
0: And this story, Scott, you're all over this. Uh, and this involves the Mets. Uh, after hedge fund titan Steve Cohen's MLB record two point six billion dollar bid for the Mets fell through, the team is back on sale again. Uh,
2: Scott, this is your story, man. Well, here's the important part, Bar. The deal with Steve Cohen had a precondition from the Mets side. It was that Fred Wilpon would remain the managing partner for five years, and his son Jeff would remain the COO of the team for five years and apparently steve cohen was okay with those terms however late in the process it appears that steve cohen tried to change some of those terms and it was unacceptable to the mets and the deal fell apart the important part now is that yes the team is back on the market beginning today allen and company is taking this far and wide however it is being presented to buyers without preconditions again without preconditions that means that five-year path isn't necessarily a part of any deal. The Wilpons seemingly are willing to sell the team and be done with the team. That could, because of the immediacy, want attract a lot of wealthy folks who are interested in the New York sports team, but could also push that price higher than $2.6 billion.
3: Yeah. I was, I was going to ask you about the price. So the, the Cohen deal would have valued the team at $2.6 Billion, uh, and that I think struck a lot of people as, as a fairly high number. Uh, and there was talk about you know the what, and I would love to hear your thoughts here. How much does the fact that you know that the this Cohen deal fell apart, does that deter future potential buyers? Do they look at the Wilpons and they say, look, you know, there's an evidence here that that these people, you know, are changing negotiation terms, or you know, for some reason they couldn't get this across the line. I don't want to waste my time. Looking at this, or is there no kind of ill effect of this thing falling apart for the Wilpons from a price standpoint? Scott,
0: before you Evan, answer, let that, me tell you how because you mentioned Allen and Company. Allen and Company—that's the investment bank retained by the Mets, just in case people don't know. I'm sorry, go ahead.
2: That's right, and Steve Greenberg has sold many, many sports e- franchises, <laughs> so he's been. This is not his first rodeo. Um, but, Evan, to your point, what do we hear all the time from bankers as to what really supports price and attracts these bidders? It's scarcity, scarcity, right? Yeah, What? Well, yeah. this is scarcity. And what we've got here is the ultimate trophy asset, a New York major sports franchise. These do not pop up. If you want to own a professional sports team in the number one media market, they do not come around very often. And the Nets just traded. Unlikely, the Yankees will trade. Unlikely, the Knicks will trade. This is your shot to get in which is why my guess is on a global scale you will have multiple bidders which of course and in itself more bidders higher price very simple formula but let's also note as in the previous sale to steve cohen sny the piece of sny not for mm. sale that's the cash cow mm-hmm. the mets lose i understand anywhere from 50 to 100 million dollars a year so you're gonna need somebody who has the deep pockets to withstand those losses as they try and turn things around to profitability.
3: And you have to sustain those losses without the the media. I mean, we, we talk a lot on the show about how, you know, owning the stadium, the network and the team is the best way to, to to maximize profits. When you only own two of those things or one of those things and not the media network, how else do you, I mean, is, is it just from a ticket sales and, and, and sponsorship standpoint? How are you, how are you maximizing that?
2: Yeah, that's it. I mean, you know the ten poles, Evan. You got to try to leverage it, whether and whether it's payroll, it's money in, money out, and it's strictly on the team basis, because SNY is not part of it. City Field not part of it. So you got to figure out what else can I do. What have we seen? There's there is a play around City Field for real estate, right? We see what's going on around there. There There is is a possible real estate play and media. Those local rights are tied up, unlike the Dodgers who bought a team and paid a record price at the time, but then immediately flipped the local rights with Time Warner, there is no such play for the Mets now. They're locked up with SNY for another decade. So if you're going to do this, you have to either accept losses until you can change something with the team or figure out another tempo as a way to drive revenue. That's a challenge.
3: More than two point six billion dollars for just the Mets and not the stadium or the piece of the RSN feels like uh, a lot of money. But you're right, scarcity is driving the prices of these things up, and you know there's only two teams in the in the world's uh, the country's biggest media market, and. This is the one that's for sale. So, you know, we'll see.
0: This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. I'm Michael Barr. You can follow me on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. I'm Scott Soschnick. You can follow me
2: on Twitter at Soschnick.
3: And I'm Eben Novi williams You can follow me at Novi underscore Williams. We're here each and every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday exploring the world of money and sports. And you can join us again at the end of the week. We have NASCAR president Steve Phelps joining us to talk <laughs> all things NASCAR and Daytona 500. You can hear him squealing right now. Michael Barr, very excited. I I'm
0: excited. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world and online wherever you get your podcasts.
1: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang.